0: Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today's show is a little bit of a different one, but its guest will be very familiar to many of our listeners.
1: My name is Sherry Walling, and I am a clinical psychologist with a specialty in entrepreneur mental health.
0: Sherry is, of course, the host of the wonderful podcast, Zen Founder, where she is sometimes joined by her husband and frequent TMBA guest, rob walling founder of tiny seed those who have listened to sherry's podcast zen founder know that she has been very openly and movingly sharing about the upheavals and losses that she's gone through how it's affected her her enterprises and their whole family strangely enough this is a very important entrepreneurial topic we mostly talk about wins in entrepreneurial literature but fundamentally for me Entrepreneurship is an opportunity to plan for the future, a future that will inevitably have loss and pain and challenges. And entrepreneurship is an opportunity to be better prepared for those things. And hopefully that's the theme of today's episode. The thing about loss and grief is that there's a strange taboo about talking about it. Perhaps someone in your life is going through pain or they're embarrassed or we just don't know how to broach that big conversation. And all of these are some of the reasons that Sherry has written a powerful book about her own experience, which includes practical suggestions that might help others that find themselves in the same place. And that's going to be all of us one way or another. And I have to say, I found this book incredibly moving, poignant, sad, but also uplifting. And I definitely had a sense of connection reading this book. It's called Touching Two Worlds, A Guide to Finding Hope in the Aftermath of Loss.
1: So I've been thinking about and talking about how to help really high-performing people with difficult things. And that's like a deep part of my work. And then a few years ago, a bunch of very difficult things started happening to me. So I started having this different understanding of how to walk through loss and heartache. And so my father was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in February of 2017. And esophageal cancer is one of the bad ones. It's one of those pretty fast-moving, aggressive cancers that usually by the time it's caught is pretty far along. And so he battled that for 18 months and then died. And right around the same time, my youngest brother, who had always had an alcohol issue and had struggled with depression, really began to implode alongside my dad. And we lost him to suicide six months after we lost my dad. So it was a lot of loss in a short period of time and a lot of watching these people that I loved kind of implode in a short period of time.
0: There was more too. You mentioned that you lost a daughter as well in a way.
1: Yeah, my husband and I were guardians of a little girl and she was with us for almost four years. She came to live with us when she was seven. And right along the same timeline of all these other losses, Her birth mother got sober, which is great, but then started pursuing reunification with her, which was not something that we thought was going to happen for a variety of complex reasons. We ended up losing her as well about a year ago.
0: One of the interesting explorations you have is you were trying to figure out what the connection between your brother and father's death was. I'm curious if you could walk us through your thought process there. I found that fascinating. It really jumped out at me.
1: I think it's so confusing to grow up alongside someone and have similar genetics, similar experiences and watch their life be very different than yours. And I think that became so clear as my father got sick and started dying. And I, as the oldest sister, went into this sort of helping, functional, go to the doctor's appointments, help with the medicine, just this like role. And my youngest brother just could not, really just couldn't even keep himself together, was just in the hospital, had one accident after another. And I think it was really a cause for a lot of consideration for me to figure out how he was so tied to my dad that When my dad began to be ill and eventually to die, it felt like he couldn't find his footing or couldn't keep going. And it really made me feel like it's super important to talk about grief and loss, especially among young people, people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, because in a way we're really not well equipped for it. And I think that was part of what was happening for him is this layer of grief got added on to his other heartache and he just couldn't pull himself out.
0: There's one moment in the book when you talk about having seen the Thestrals is this idea of like you, well, tell us what that idea is all about and how that might bring us very close to death.
1: So in in Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling writes about these creatures called the Thestrals that can only be seen by those who have seen someone die. So after a certain point in the story, Harry, I think it's his uncle that he sees die. And suddenly he can see these creatures and the first time he sees them, he's terrified of them. Like he never knew they were there before. But then other people around him, his friend Luna, lets him know what they are and why he can see them. I think what's so striking about my brother and I is we were both with my dad when he died. Like we were both in the bed beside him And I came away feeling like it was one of the most profound and beautiful experiences that I'd ever been part of in my whole life, right? Just like sacred and important. And my brother, that very evening, stole the hospice medicine, got super high and went looking for alcohol and ended up in jail. So we had like in that very moment, like very different experiences of that.
0: I think one of the most stunning chapters is your reflection on your relationship with Rob and how that's changed. That was heartbreaking to read or beautifully written is another way to put that. Yeah. Um, You said grief is very isolating and isolating for the bereaved and for those that love them. I'm wondering if you could bring us into your thought process about your living relationships and how that's affected by grief.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The thing about grief is that it is experienced so differently by all the people who are impacted. So as I mentioned, my brother and I had a very different experience of what it felt like to grieve our father. And then Rob and I, my husband of now 22 years, we had a very different experience of all these losses. It felt very different to us. He'd known my brother and father for almost his entire adult life. So he had relationships with them. Those were losses to him, too. But they impacted us very differently And certainly the loss of our daughter was held very differently by the two of us. And because those losses are so emotionally overwhelming, it can feel like you're just living in a parallel life with someone and you're speaking a different language. Rob is wonderful in his ability to be a problem solver. He has two engineering degrees. He runs SASP. He's just really good at like logistics and problem solving in sort of this probably stereotypical male, female way. And I'm like the feeling person. And so I felt my perception is that he was really overwhelmed by my emotion and wanted to fix it. And of course, his perception is like, I'm just trying to be loving and helpful to you. And so we missed each other a lot. And because there were so many losses over so many years and they were so disruptive, that was a long time to miss each other. And so it took a couple of years to put things back together and re each other. But it was an unexpected difficulty for me because we have a very loving and supported relationship. And I would have said, we can go through all kinds of hard things and support each other well, but this was unexpectedly difficult to support each other and just connect.
0: You mentioned that it was hard to accept that you weren't coming back from grief, that you would be different forever.
1: I think people talk about healing from grief or moving through it, getting over it. And I think that the loss does stay with you. And I feel quite different as a result of these experiences that I've had. In some ways, a little edgier, in some ways, a little like intolerant of anything that wastes my time because I've, I have this really like radically overwhelming existential sense of how finite time is. So there are just some things that feel very different as a result of grief. And that has mapped onto my relationships. I'm a different version of myself. And mostly that's good, I think, but it's also a lot to take.
0: There are some concepts that are really hard to wrap your mind around. There's a chapter where you talk about like sharing a lot of the traits with your father. And then you have a chapter on God, too, even.
1: Heaven, yeah.
0: It's like the transition to death doesn't change the connection.
1: I think when you lose someone, there's this sort of logical part of your brain that's like, well, where'd they go? It's almost like a childlike part, but I think it's a pretty hardwired object permanence, right? There was a person just there. And now you're telling me they're not here and they're nowhere, they they don't exist. Like, it's a very weird, like, math problem. I grew up in a very religious family and I have a lot of religious family and people in my life. So I don't say this in a disparaging way, but I do think that that's where some of our beliefs or practices around where they went become really helpful coping mechanisms. So if, if you believe that someone has gone to heaven, so my, this very important belief to my mother that her son, my father, they're in heaven now, like they have an existence. And I couldn't hold that. Like it just did not it didn't work for me. And so I was sort of still grappling or just trying to do this math around, well, where did they go? And I found some sense of connection to this idea that they're still in me. Like my dad, my brother, and I, we all have the same kind of eyes. Or my dad and I have the same like muscular shoulders. My brother and I like the same kinds of activities, paddleboarding. And so it has made me feel like in some ways, the thing that I can most grasp is that I am the continuation of them in the sort of existential sense. And again, maybe they're just nowhere and maybe they are in heaven or maybe there's some other alternative we haven't come up with as humans. But I know that there's still that sort of shared cellular material and that feels like it has spiritual significance to me as I hold them within me moving forward in my life.
0: It seems as a society, we underestimate grief. What were some of the ways people spoke with you, especially during this period? I mean, there's different epochs that you point out, but especially when things are extremely acute, the first month you talk about that phase first few months what are the ways people spoke with you that resonated that you would then maybe counsel people on in the future about ways to approach and broach the topic of grief without being lame (laughs) essentially (laughs) how are you doing I guess might be the one
1: which is better than nothing right if that's all you can think to ask then just ask that But I really, really loved when people would ask me directly, do you want to talk about your brother? Do you want to tell me a story about your brother? Do you want to tell me a story about your dad? And that is so powerful because everybody knows that they've died, right? It's in the room. But I think sometimes people are afraid to bring it up directly because they don't want to, like, I guess, remind you. It just feels awkward to speak of the dead. We're not used to that, but. Because especially early on, it's the story that's playing so loudly in the mind of the bereaved person. It feels weird to even talk about anything else sometimes. And so to have somebody invite very gently, like, would you like to talk about this person is a really significant gift. It also, when you phrase it that way, gives the space to say, you know what? I just don't want to talk about it right now. Let's talk about football, baseball, something else.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes the idea of like speaking about your grief directly in such an acute period is feels inappropriate and almost impossible as well. It was even more challenging when you were determining how to speak with your children about it. So you write that talking with my children about Dave's death, who's your brother, was so hard because it threatened to dismantle their basic assumptions about goodness, safety and the predictability of the world.
1: Suicide is hard to talk about, period. And it's particularly difficult for conversation with young children because young children are, by nature of their neurological development, pretty black and white. Like generally, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. If you do the right things, you'll have a good outcome. It's very simplistic, but it's sort of the default setting. And so my kids have this default setting and they can understand kind of the science of cancer, right? Grandpa's cells started growing in his esophagus. They started growing too fast and they they clogged it up. It's not not quite totally perfectly accurate, but it's good enough. Suicide is a lot harder, right? The language around he was too sad, too heartbroken. He didn't want to live anymore. He drank himself, you know, none of it really fits with a a kind of neat and clean black and white way of seeing the world that most children have. And I want them to have for as long as they can. Right. You don't want to totally dismantle a kid's worldview before you have to, or you want to do it in a way that's really, really gentle and thoughtful, which I grappled with a lot. How to talk to them about this.
0: How do you think it affected them?
1: I think they were most affected by my grief or by watching Rob and I grieve. Because we are the adults in their immediate sphere. And so they they saw their mother crying or sad or just gone a lot, going to doctor's appointments and helping with funeral. I mean, just I was just busy doing things. And I think that they carry a sadness in them that in some ways is more of a contagion from my grief, probably. They love their uncle. They love their grandpa. And they miss them. But I think really they were, they missed me during that season.
0: You you said that children see death over and over, but there's very little treatment of grief. This seems to be like a theme. What do you mean by that, that they see death over and over?
1: Yeah. So there's a study that I talk about in the book that somebody actually counted. In children's movies, how frequently death or murder specifically is part of the plot line. And it happens a lot. Like every movie you could think of almost has some kind of parental death usually or the death of a sibling or the death of someone close. It's like a sort of really common kind of easy, maybe a little bit lazy plot device. But as a result, like kids are seeing that all the time. It's also pretty natural for kids to worry about the death of a loved one. Like, that's pretty developmentally appropriate. But in these depictions, usually in kids' movies, the person who has experienced this loss goes right back into solving a problem or doing a thing like saving the world or building a robot or like whatever it is. They have a job to do and a thing to take them away from a period of disruption or a period of grief. And so I think we really do a disservice when we sort of paint this picture that sad somebody dies and then there's things to be done and there's not this like open space to like rebuild your heart, which I think is probably something we need to help kids understand a little bit better.
0: One thing that seems to be in like the generational background you point to is a statistic that suggests that suicide rates have gone up 30% in the previous 20 years.
1: Yeah, this is from the CDC. I'm
0: really curious to hear some of the leading theories that you're familiar with and also even just some conjecture about what is the environment that is leading to this and what are maybe some ways out of it?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the drivers of that number is the amount of combat deployments that the U.S. has been involved with because the suicide rate among veterans is just astronomically high. And so that's a piece of it because in the years of between, was it 2000 and 2020? Yeah, that there were so many folks who were deployed returning from deployment. So just statistically, that's one of the drivers. I think we're also seeing another really, really high risk group for suicide is among LGBTQ plus kids. So youngsters who are in the middle of a lot of sort of identity exploration and are not necessarily still receiving the kind of support that they need to help solidify who they are in a way that feels positive and safe.
0: Are we in a polarized space where we're sort of in the middle where it's like, okay, to be more flexible with identity, but it's not fully supported by society yet. So it's this danger zone in the middle or... Like what was different in 1990, for example? Just we didn't know about this stuff or?
1: No, I think what you're identifying is that people who were identifying as gay or lesbian would either not come out until much later in life. So to come out at 14, 15, but in a not fully supportive society has different implications because those kiddos are young. I mean, they're just less able to withstand some of the pressure or the stigma that they experience. So that's another, I think, cultural trend that's driving that increased rate. Kids are also getting older, younger, if that makes sense.
0: I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I I notice it every time I talk to a kid. I'm like, holy cannoli. You guys, like, I didn't speak like this when I was 22, let alone 14. Some of these, it's incredible. So what's going on there?
1: And I don't want to sound like a sort of curmudgeonly social media person because I use social media as well. But I do think that the access to information and the referencing on social media is pretty overwhelming for kids developmentally. When I was in training in graduate school, we didn't train for how to work with children who were suicidal. We started the conversation around suicidal thoughts with teenagers. But one of these risk groups that's experiencing a really significant increase in suicidality is children that are not teens, right? So 9, 10, 11, 12, sort of that tween group. So that is a group that I think really has had this huge shift in what they're exposed to because of the the level of technology and technological access that that age group experiences. I think kids are, they're faced with big problems before they're ready is the bottom line. I mean, I think if you talk to a 12 year old these days, like they're worried about global warming. They're worried about Roe v. Wade. Like they're like carrying big adult problems that they can't do anything meaningful about. They can't even vote, but they're carrying the weight of them. Um hmm. and, and that's, that's a lot for a young brain.
0: How do you walk that back? Or is that The cat's out of the bag.
1: Uh, I mean, one way to walk that back is to try to protect childhood as long as we can. Like, I think the pandemic has been really, really, really rough for kids because everything went online. And now Hmm. my kids don't go through a school day without being in their iPads like six hours a day. That's how instruction happens. And so I think walking back access is part of it. Like getting out to play, like going fishing, like doing childhood things can be really, really helpful because part of what's driving some of this mental health crisis among children is obviously the exposure, but it's also just the the amount of hours in a day that kids are sitting still and staring at a screen is really neurologically bad for kids. It's bad for grownups too, but it's especially bad for kids.
0: I have this kind of observation, maybe I grew up in a very sheltered small community, but it seems like my parents and my friends' parents and all of us, they didn't really take much of an interest in us. So it's almost like, Hey, you guys are kids. You're not that interesting. Like, we don't really want to spend a ton of time with you. Go hang out with your friends. And I see in families around me every day, it feels like the kids and the parents have a much closer relationship than in my generation. Have you seen that as yeah. well? And what do you make of it?
1: Oh, and I think kids are parents' projects. What your kid does, how many sports they do, what their grades are, where they're applying to college, what they want to be with. That's all like the conversation at the cocktail hour. Like, for both mothers and fathers. So kids are... In a way that's unprecedented in, in history, I think kids are an extension of their families. And that's a lot of pressure for children. So,
0: yeah, it's adult pressure.
1: That's adult pressure. And many adults don't even want that pressure. Like, that's <laughs> entrepreneur pressure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, you think about <laughs> your friends and my friends who are running businesses. We put that pressure on ourselves, yeah. but that's even like outliers. Most people are just sitting at home watching TV. <laughs> So, I think there's this like larger societal pressure and exposure, but I think the way that the nuclear family has changed, such that children are this, again, just this sort of like
0: gemstone success object,
1: yeah, object of their parents' outcomes is really unhelpful for kids.
0: You made a a conjecture in an article recently. I would like to go over it because it's fascinating. The thesis is how the great grief led to the great resignation. I hadn't quite heard this angle before. And I'm wondering if you can talk us through the basic hypothesis and where it came from.
1: Grief is an undoing event. So the pandemic, whether or not you knew someone that literally died, I think the pandemic was grief inducing for everyone. Right, plans were canceled, events were canceled, weddings were canceled. Like there were all kinds of ways in which our lives were disrupted, and the predictability and safety of our lives felt very disrupted. You know, can I hug this person? Can I touch this person? Can I bring? I remember the days where you like were bleaching your groceries before you brought I do. it? I like... mean,
0: like, like the delivery person had contaminated. Right. Yeah.
1: With the wipes.
0: That's a a strange way to regard others.
1: Yeah, Rob bought a a battery operated radio. I was like, what are we gonna do with this? <laughs> like, what's the point? And he's like, well, the, I don't know. Like, but that was just the fear. Was like, what if the world will just shuts down? Yeah. So you know, we're laughing about it. Or I'm out laughing about it a little bit. But like, it is. That is disruptive and traumatic. And when we lose a sense of predictability and safety and when we lose all our plans and so many of our connections, even for a short period, grief is the natural response. It's the emotional reaction to loss. Not to mention, of course, the many, many people that died and the people that are then all connected to those people. So I think that that has forced us to get, again, kind of existential about what it is that we find valuable what we want to be doing with our limited, finite amount of time on the planet. And a lot of people have decided, like, it's it's not going to this job. It's not sitting in this cube. It's not doing this activity. And, of course, the nature of work is changing. As you well know, there are opportunities. There are ways to be able to travel, to be at home, to be flexible with family life or adventure life, whatever you're optimizing for, and pay the bills. And that starts to look like a really good option.
0: You mentioned a lot about how to be in a hospital. I found that chapter daunting because I feel that I will have to know how to be in a hospital and that a lot of us are like actively avoiding that kind of outcome on a daily basis with our business class flights and our conferences and stuff. But there's this worry in the back of our minds that we'll end up in a hospital someday and having to be competent. So I'm hoping you can share some of your experiences doing that and what it's like and how we can prepare.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it is one of those things that most of us will have to do. And when we have to do it, it's because somebody that we love is needs us. It didn't feel like this great sacrifice of like, oh, I'd rather be somewhere else because when my people were in the hospital, I wanted to be with them. And that's, I think, important to sort of also acknowledge yeah, hospitals are terrible, terrible places. I can't believe anybody gets better in a hospital, which again, for those of you who work in hospitals, like big love to you.
0: You said don't touch anything.
1: Don't touch anything. These are sort of popular now. they I don't know if they make them for men, but they make these like um, sweatshirts that have thumb holes. So they're they're like a little bit long and they can cover your fingers. And so you could like turtle (laughs) your hands back into the sweatshirt. So I would wear something like that so that I could get through the day with like not having this, my actual skin touching anything like elevator buttons, chair arms, things like that. Because, yeah, there's lots and lots and lots of germs in hospitals. There's also really lots of great people in hospitals. So. One of the things that was really (laughs) meaningful and helpful was just to spend a lot of time talking with the nurses, with the doctors, like sort of getting to know them. It was a great investment for me for my own mental well-being because I was in the hospital with my brother for days on end. And so getting to know the people who are taking care of him made me feel like I had some buddies. But I also think that it helped humanize my brother to these people. And I think they spent a little extra time, paid a little attention. They did things like they made medical decisions around when they could, around when I was going to be there. So they sort of knew my schedule of coming and going. And so they woke him up from a coma, for example, when I was there. So that was helpful. Just the humanness of getting to know folks. I think getting to know like when the coffee is fresh at the nurse's station is really good.
0: What did you find that was comfortable to your father and your brother when you were by their sides? like what are... Maybe some unexpected things that they were going through that you were able to help with.
1: Yeah, I brought photos and scotch tape and just covered the hospital room with photos of the dog and our family and something that was familiar and less sterile. I think that was really important. Bringing in articles of clothing that are familiar and comfortable is also helpful we had these flannel shirts from my dad that I brought for my brother when he was in the hospital that just felt like some things like a hug, a reminder. Yeah. Those things are
0: helpful. You write that I'm curious as to how this has changed your view of your clients. You said that you your capacity has changed to empathize. I think you are like the prototypical entrepreneur in many ways, like call up Sherry, she'll solve the problem. She's got this kind of thing. You feel in a way, I didn't before, especially the sadness that has helped within ambitious, successful people. So what is the difference between the sadness that ambitious people have maybe than just your average run-of-the-mill?
1: An ambitious, sad person. (laughs) 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 Um, Well, I think the way that I show up professionally is different in a couple of ways. One is that my training, maybe not so much my entrepreneurial chops, but my clinical training as a psychologist, is to be pretty guarded around my personal life or perspective, and that's there are lots of reasons for that. But writing this book, even somewhat before it doing the podcast where I was talking a little bit about these experiences as they were happening, but certainly writing this book and having my life implode so dramatically, I couldn't keep the kind of clinical distance that maybe I held in the past. Like I'm much more myself in my work in a way that I think is mostly great. It feels much more comfortable to me. And I think because the vast majority of my clients are entrepreneurs, they kind of appreciate it more. That it feels a little more familiar. I think when the folks that I work with, when they experience grief, it's an active sadness, right? It's sadness that wants to do something obviously entrepreneurs are pretty action-oriented folk. And so there's this need to help shape that latent energy that grief causes. And because I have walked through that so much, I really know what it looks like and some of the things that can be helpful, which is, I think, a little different than other kinds of sadness, which can be more still, more quiet, more sort of like traditional picture of what you think of with sadness. But entrepreneurs are like agitated sad,
0: like There's an insistence to it.
1: Yeah, an urgency.
0: What are some of those things that you, what are some behaviors that you shape with your clients?
1: I think one of the questions is about meaningful action. Is there a meaningful action to be taken with this problem? And if there's not a meaningful action to be taken with the kind of grief or stuckness that someone might be experiencing, then the meaningful action question gets applied to, what's the meaningful action with this feeling? So what's the, Expression of a feeling? Is it artistic? Is it time to write a song? Pick up the guitar again? Is it time to write? Is it time to make, you know, to paint? Is it time to go to a support group? Is it time to write a talk about what you're experiencing? I think these experiences long for some expression, and helping people figure out how to find that for themselves becomes an important way to kind of soothe that agitated sadness.
0: There's a lot of wonderful suggestions in your book. A lot of them revolve around physical activity. You talk about yoga, your passion for aerial acrobatics, which is a pretty cool... That's like a hobby flex, by the way. Aerial acrobatics. <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> I know you're, you're doing your book launch, actually. What's I'm the concept the there? I'm hosting a circus tomorrow. Congrats. I read the, the newspaper article. What's the concept there?
1: So one of my coaches, a woman named Lynn also lost her brother to suicide. And as the two of us started talking about it, we ended up talking about how our loss has shaped our aerial practice. So I work with aerial silks and then I work on the flying trapeze. And it's been super powerful for me in my grief because it's given me something to do with my body. But also it's a really focusing activity. I feel I have to be awake. I have to be dialed in. I have to be really focused on what I'm doing in order to stay safe. And so sometimes Ariel was the only place that my heart wasn't broken because it demanded me to be focused and alert in a way that I was all in on what I was doing. So we had this conversation, Lynn and I, and we one thing led to another and we thought we should make a show. We should make a circus show that uses circus arts around Grief, around mental health, around suicide awareness, sort of pick a theme. And I I thought, well, just so happens I should probably do something for a book launch. And so we put the pieces together and yeah, it's tomorrow actually. So we'll be hosting 250 people at a circus show.
0: Another tool that is becoming talked about quite a bit is MDMA therapy. And I'm wondering if you could describe your experience with that and what it meant to you.
1: Yeah, so I was fortunate to have some connections to a physician who could administer kind of a, a formal MDMA therapy process. I had to go out of the country to do it legally or not illegally, I guess. But MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, I'm sure your listeners are somewhat familiar with this, or they will be really soon because it'll be FDA approved probably in the next six to 12 months. And I think there'll be lots and lots of attention on this form of therapy. But essentially, I was able to take some MDMA and then go through kind of a therapeutic process with a clinician. And for me, I did my first session a few months after my dad died, before my brother died. And in that session, I returned to this moment of my dad's death. And I was looking down and seeing myself. and In the session, I felt this just tremendous empathy for this woman, young girl, who was losing her dad. And I felt all of this just empathy for this version of me who was in this scene. When this happened in real life, quote unquote, not under MDMA, I was super attentive to what my dad needed and taking care of my mom and making sure my brothers were okay. I was just not present to my own emotional experience. I was in sort of task helper mode. And that's what the situation required. That's okay. But it was super healing for me to have that empathetic moment to appreciate my own loss. And I think it helped me to grieve in this very tender, self-compassionate way that I didn't quite have access to before I did that therapy work. So that's just sort of one example of how that worked for me. But I think because MDMA in particular is an an empathogen, it creates empathy. It's really, really helpful for processes like grief. And of course, it will be rolled out, I think, quite widely for the treatment of PTSD, which often involves a lot of grief.
0: What's your message to entrepreneurs out there? You see us, I'm assuming in your private practice, you see us socially. What's your current take on our community and how we're treating ourselves.
1: I do think that conversations around mental health have become a bigger part of our conversations as entrepreneurs, which I'm very happy for. Because I do think that we are vulnerable to being people who push, push, push ourselves to accomplish the things that we want, but then to find sort of a, a scarcity of soul or emotionally unhealthy of feeling really empty inside and so I think that's the inner work is to check in with what's going on inside and make sure that there's there's life there too it's not just all in the accomplishing the things
0: often it's like a broken cycle or pattern that drives us to accomplish things I'm going to say this and then have you respond to it because you have more experience If something bad happens That makes you want to make it good. And so make it good, make it good, make it good becomes a pattern that leads you to have success. And then because it's just a a self-licking ice cream cone, it doesn't actually fulfill. But the good news is you can become aware of the make it good pattern and still execute the pattern, but simultaneously have some hope at a greater fulfillment.
1: Yeah, I think the patterns become toxic when they become scripts that we're following like little robots but when we can recognize our patterns and have some self-insight then we can still choose the pattern right the ability to accomplish things to make things happen in the world is a great skill we don't undermine it just because maybe it came from a pathological place but you can treat the pathology you can like address the hurt that's underlying the behavior and still keep the successful behavior if you wish to
0: so we've been on the phone for an hour i really appreciate this sherry i I thought in closing it would be really cool to put on wax like a favorite story about your brother and dad because a lot of the book is a love note to those two guys and it was interesting to try to imagine both what they were like and what they meant to you
1: one of my favorite stories of them we call it operation kayak It's because at one point my brother decided that he wanted to be a kayaker, which is great, but he really had no skills or training. So he (laughs) acquired a kayak from Craigslist and goes kayaking in this uh, creek in Northern California near where we grew up, which was like way too high a level for him. But he's a wilderness guy. So he's like, oh, it'll be fine. Turns out not fine. So (laughs) wipes out of the kayak. Kayak goes on down the river. And he has to like hike out of this canyon, ends up getting picked up by some like high school teacher who just happened to be driving by. Bizarre story. Comes home and we're like, where were you? Are you okay?" You know, he's fine. Everybody's cool. But then we're like, we got to go find the kayak. So it was me and my dad and my brother and we're like scouring this river for the kayak. We finally find it. And then it's again, it's in this canyon. So it's like this like goat trail of trying to get down to the canyon and get the kayak out and get it in the van. It was just a whole thing. It was a whole day of kayak recovery. (laughs) And then, of course, we get the kayak back. And my brother's like, I don't think I'm going to kayak (laughs) anymore. Like, that just wasn't that fun. It was this sort of theme of, like, mischievously being up for things, making messes, and then kind of cleaning them up together. We kind of bailed each other out a lot.
0: Big thanks to Sherry Walling, host of the Zen Founder podcast, which is always an amazing listen. And I appreciate her writing this book. Definitely worth picking up. It's called Touching Two Worlds, a guide to finding hope in the aftermath of loss. It's moving, it's funny in places, and it's an amazing read. Thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time as usual.